Tension mounted in the summer of 1861, leading to the first major battle of the Civil War. On July 21st, about 30,000 Union troops commanded by General Irvin McDowell attacked a smaller Confederate force led by General P.G.T. Beauregard. The fighting took place in Northern Virginia near a small river called Bull Run. Hundreds, hundreds of spectators from Washington, D.C. watched the battle from a few miles away. Both sides lacked battle experience. At first, the Yankees drove the Confederates back. Then the rebels rallied, inspired by General Thomas Jackson. Another Confederate general noted that Jackson was holding his position like a stone wall. This earned him the nickname Stonewall Jackson. The Confederates then unleashed a savage counterattack that broke the Union lines. As they retreated, Union troops ran into civilians fleeing in panic. The loss shocked Northerners, who now realized that the war could be long and difficult. President Lincoln named a new general, George B. McClellan, to head the Union Army in the East, called the Army of the Potomac, and to train the troops. Although dismayed over Bull Run, President Lincoln was also determined. He put out a call for more Army volunteers. He signed two bills requesting a total of one million soldiers to serve for three years. In addition, victories in the West would soon give a boost to Northern spirits and also increase enlistment. That was an excerpt from a middle school U.S. history textbook, giving us a slice of history from the Civil War. Now, the Civil War was and remains the deadliest war in United States history, with over 600,000 casualties. And as people living in the United States, we are all familiar with it to one degree or another. It is part of our story. We can visualize Northern Virginia on a map, or, as well as Washington, D.C. We know that rebels refers to the Confederacy in the South, and that Yankees refers to the Union in the North. The Civil War happened. We don't need this history book or any history book to prove that the Civil War happened, but rather to learn the details. Yet not all history is conducted this way. The further back we reach into time, the murkier it gets. The Civil War was only 150 years ago. Sure, that sounds like a long time, and in terms of a single lifespan, it is. But 150 years is only 3% of the 5,000 years of recorded human, human history available to us. It's the difference between 97 cents and a dollar. But when we reach further and further back, 3,000 and 4,000 and even 5,000 years ago to the very beginnings of recorded history, we're not only wondering what really happened, the data and the details, but if anything really ever happened in the first place. This morning, we're continuing our study, our, in our study of the book of Genesis. And for those of you who don't know, which on a morning like this one is lots of you, my name is Zach, and I'm currently the part-time youth pastor, very excited, uh, and soon to be a full-time associate pastor here at Prairie View. Uh, my name is Zach, and, and we are continuing, like I said, in Genesis. And as we examine Genesis this morning, you may be tempted to ask the question that we tend to ask the further back we go in history. Not what really happened, but did anything like this ever happen in the first place? But this isn't a question that Genesis sets out to answer. Can it answer this question? Sure, in a bit of a roundabout way. But if we're primarily concerned with proving the history of Genesis using the book of Genesis, we're going to be exhausted 
And we're going to fall far short of what God offers to us in his word. The concern of Genesis is not to prove itself. It's not to prove its own history, but to impart to the reader or the listener the theological significance of these particular events in time. Genesis was not written to legitimize the faith of 21st century Christians in a skeptical world. Does it have something to say to us? Absolutely. Otherwise, I would not be here this morning speaking, preaching from it. But but Genesis was written for ancient Jews to remind them that they served a mighty God who was not only committed to his promises, but mighty enough to keep them come hell or high water. So we'll turn next to Genesis 24. But before we go any further this morning, let's pray and ask for the Lord's blessing. Would you bow your heads with me? Dear Heavenly Father, um, speak through me. Uh, Use me as an instrument to play your song uh, to your praise and your glory. God, that you would empower me with the Holy Spirit uh, to bear witness, to testify about the goodness of your Son, Jesus Christ what he's done for us. Um, The reason that we gather to celebrate is not to just share meals and make friends, but because we have a risen Lord. Um, So God, I just pray that you would speak through me, you'd speak to us in your word, and that we would leave this place encouraged, lifted up, uh, and loving one another as we look to you and look to your son more and more. It's in Jesus' precious name I pray. Amen. So like I said, this morning we're going to focus our attention on Genesis 24 and 25 and 26, which can be neatly divided into three accounts, three stories from the life of Isaac. The first, found in chapter 24, is the account of Isaac and his wife, Rebekah. The second, found in chapter 25, is an account of the birth of Jacob and Esau, Isaac's twin sons. And the third, found in chapter 26, is the account of Isaac and his household in Gerar, a land familiar to his father Abraham. So we will begin this morning in Genesis 24, verse 1. Um, So if you would read along with me, Genesis 24, verse 1 begins, Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, Put your hand under my thigh, that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and God of the earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and my kindred and take a wife for my son. Isaac. Now, before we go any further in chapter 24, it's important to know that death is on the brain for Abraham in chapter 24. It hasn't been yet, uh, mentioned yet this morning, but all 20 verses of chapter 23 are dedicated to the death and burial of Sarah, Abraham's wife and the mother of Isaac. Now, Sarah happened to be 10 years younger than Abraham, and chapter 23 tells us that she was 127 years old when she died. So simple math makes Abraham at least 137 when this is taking place. That's old. There are no euphemism. It's, it's just old. 137 is not the new 127. Right? He is old and death is on his brain. But but like I said, before we turn our attention back to what's happening in chapter 24, chapter 23, while small and lacking excitement, is an important development in the story of the Bible. It's here in chapter 23 that Abraham first acquires a piece of the the promised land. He, He buys a field from the locals, Ephron the Hittite to be exact, and buries his dearly beloved Sarah in a cave at the end of the property. And over the years, Abraham will join her, and so will Isaac. And so will Jacob. 
And eventually, Abraham's descendants would indeed come in to possess not only this single plot of land, but all of the surrounding land, and, and, and much, much more, according to the promise of the Lord. But in chapter 24, Abraham is not dead yet. He's not dead yet. He knows death is near. It's, well, for him, it ends up being about 40 years later, which is incredible. But he's, he's concerned with setting his household in order, which most importantly for him means finding a good wife for his son. Knowing the promise that God has made to bless him, to make him a great nation, he is concerned with helping his son in, in continuing in that promise. So Abraham summons his chief servant, a man with a lot of authority in Abraham's household, maybe as much as Isaac, if not more. And Abraham makes him take an oath in a very strange way. Now, this certainly isn't the first weird oath we've witnessed, and it's possible you read straight over it uh, and don't take any note of it. But if, if you are like me and you, and you wonder at these things, um, the bit of an explanation is putting his hand under his thigh. It's personal. I, I don't think I can or need to explain it any more than that. It's a highly personal act. And it's not, again, it's not the first time we see a weird oath like that. It's not the only time this happens in the Bible. But things like this are weird to us. And, and part of the reason is because they weren't weird to them. And because they weren't weird to the people in ancient Israel, there's not much of an explanation found. So we can read and we can scratch our heads and wonder. But the point is, when we read Abraham commanding his servant to place his hand under his thigh in such a weird way, no matter how uncomfortable it makes us or how much we might squirm, we have to realize that it was a practice done to show the severity of the promise being made. A hand under the thigh, again, is a highly personal thing. And given the context, a very serious agreement was being made. Abraham was commanding his servant to go to Abraham's country of origin to find a wife for Isaac from his own people. He explicitly says, do not take a wife for Isaac from this land. Do not take a wife from the Canaanites. Go to my homeland. Right? Just, just not the Canaanites. And the Canaanites get a bad rap in the Bible, and it's understandably so, because they were literally cursed. They were literally cursed by Noah. And so this intentional separation of the people of God from the people of Canaan was an ongoing fulfillment of the curse that Noah had pronounced on his son Ham and Ham's son Canaan after a bout of wine, indecent exposure, and shame. But I highly doubt Abraham had this particular curse in mind when he was commanding his servant not to take a wife for Isaac from the Canaanites. Rather, Abraham was likely thinking about the land that God had promised to him, the land of the Canaanites. Were Isaac to marry a Canaanite woman, he'd be putting himself on a slippery slope toward assimilation with the people that already possessed the land. And so fully believing in the promises of God, Abraham wanted to preserve clear distinctions for his family and their inheritance of that land whenever God would finally provide it. So the servant swears the oath to Abraham, hand and thigh and all, grabs ten camels and packs them with all sorts of gifts, gold and silver and jewelry. And these gifts, these treasures, would be given to the family of the woman and the woman herself, similar to our cultural practice of an engagement ring. It was a physical and financial demonstration of the commitment to be married. So the servant takes his ten camels and a portion of his master's wealth and makes the journey north of several hundred miles. Now, the next thing you know, the servant has arrived and is praying that a woman would offer him and his camels a drink and that this would be God's way of revealing who Isaac's wife should be. 
Again, it's a little weird. It's, it's strange it, until you imagine yourself in ancient Mesopotamia. Because first, the Bible can give the impression that this trip was speedy. It happened quickly, right? Like packing up your Dodge Caravan and driving for a couple hours up the road. But this was no minivan. This was no Dodge Caravan. It was a caravan of camels trekking across the wilderness. Camels that upon arrival would have been unbelievably thirsty, Ten camels that could potentially drink up to 25 gallons each had they gone without water during the entire course of their journey. Camels that would require hours and hours of work at a well, drawing water from a jar that held between two and three gallons. There was no hose or spigot or faucet that could be used to water these animals quickly and efficiently. So when the servant asked God to reveal Isaac's wife as the woman who offers not only him, but his camels a drink, he's asking for a lavish, a lavish display of kindness and hospitality from a total stranger. And God graciously gives it to him. Because out walks Rebecca towards the well. And Genesis 24, 16 says that she was very attractive. And so Abraham's servant literally runs to meet her. And after giving him a drink, she, wouldn't you know, offers to draw water for his camels until they've had their fill. At this point, Genesis 24:21 says that the man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. And I, that, that particular verse just stood out to me as a strong visual, just imagining almost like a movie, this, this guy who goes and these things happen, he, can't, he can hardly believe it. All he can do is just stand there still and, and wonder at this amazing thing that's happening to him. The servant was dumbfounded. And it's safe to assume that this man, this servant, had witnessed God's kindness before, God's kindness toward Abraham. But he was now experiencing it it firsthand. God was answering the servant's prayers right in front of his eyes. But not only that, not only did God send a woman of tremendous kindness and hospitality to Abraham's servant, he sent family. Rebecca was Abraham's niece. Again, like a lot of history that's way far removed from us, it sounds strange. Rebecca was the daughter of Nahor, Abraham's brother, making Isaac and Rebecca cousins. But times were different, and for reasons that I won't get into now, this wasn't an altogether uncommon thing. In fact, Sarah was the half-sister of Abraham. Again, times were different, and such relationships had not yet been explicitly prohibited by God's law. Instead, Genesis 24, 27 tells us that this caused Abraham's servant to worship, to rejoice. He says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsmen. So this happens, and Rebecca returns home and tells her family about these things. And there's no mention of her father Nahor at this point. Uh, So we assume he's either dead or he's very, very old and very, very weak. And so her brother Laban is the man over the house. And this is important, not so much for this story here, but because Laban will uh, come back around to be a pretty important person in our Genesis story uh, and will reveal himself to be a pretty shifty, shifty guy. But Rebecca returns home and tells her brother Laban and her mother Bethuel about what has happened. And so long story short, uh, or longer story shorter, Laban and Bethuel, who were likely polytheists, right, or at the very least they didn't worship the God of Abraham, 
they recognized that God had indeed done this thing. They had seen all these things come together and were willing to say, yep, God did that. We can't stand against it. We're okay with this as long as Rebecca agrees. And she does. And so she journeys home with the servant. And upon seeing Isaac, it is love at first sight. So that's a wrap on chapter 24. We'll come back around after I'm done telling these three, uh, three stories. And the next two are much, much, much shorter. Um, but chapter 25, we've got a much shorter passage, like I just said. And, and I'll have to tread a little bit lightly on it because it begins the story of Jacob, which Ben is going to focus on over the next few weeks. But as far as Isaac is concerned, this chapter features maybe two, maybe three verses of relevance. So we're going to look at verses 20 and 21 in chapter 25. So 25, 20, and 21. And then we're going to jump down to the second half of 26. It says, And Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel the Aramean of Paddan Aram, the sister of Laban the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah his wife conceived. And then down in 26, it says, Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. So here, very similar to Sarah and Abraham, Rebecca and Isaac struggle to conceive. They know they've been promised by God to have offspring as numerous as the stars, yet 20 long years pass before Jacob and Esau are born. And so the similarities there with Abraham and Sarah are, are, are pretty obvious. But like I said, that's a short and quick scene, and we're going to keep moving into 26 where those familiar, or these similarities continue. And in a certain sense, we should expect this because both men were blessed by God. So Genesis 26.1, moving right along, makes this similarity clear. It says, now there was a famine in the land besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. So if you were to sit down and just read Genesis... You might come to this point and read that there was a famine and and say, wait a minute, I thought I already read this. What's going on? And that's what this author, that's what the author of Genesis is saying. There was a famine, kind of like the one that happened before. We know it sounds really similar, but uh, it's a different one. And he makes that point, right? So in Genesis 12, Abraham and Sarah, they encounter a famine. That's the famine being talked about that drives them down into Egypt, literally looking for greener grass. Abraham and Sarah leave the promised land going down to Egypt, looking for food. In Genesis 26, however, Isaac is specifically instructed by God not to go to Egypt, but to stay in the promised land. Picking back up in verse 2, it says, And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So heeding God's word, Isaac goes to the city of Gerar in the land of the Philistines. And maybe this surprises you, maybe it doesn't, if you're familiar with the Genesis uh, story. But Isaac is afraid that the men will kill him if they find out Rebekah is his wife. So he lies, and he says they're siblings, just like his old man Abraham had done on multiple occasions. Now it occurs to me that maybe this was fairly common. Maybe for Abraham and Isaac to share this fear on multiple occasions, this was something that happened. A foreigner shows up with an attractive wife and a decent amount of wealth and gets murdered by the locals who then claim the spoils. 
I'm not sure. And nothing seems to indicate one way or the other. But either way, Isaac's lie is found out. And not only is he not murdered, he's hardly smacked on the back of the hand. The king says, why would you do this? This could have been horrible. And is essentially like, have a nice day. And sends him off on his way. And instead of finding him being punished or Isaac suffering or, or anything like that for his sin, for his lie, Genesis tells us he prospered. In Genesis 26, 12, it says he planted and reaped that same year a hundredfold. And so Isaac amasses such a great, a great wealth that the Philistines envied him and kicked him out. They look at him and say, you disgust me. You're not one of us. We don't want to see your stupid face around here anymore. Leave. And so he leaves Gerar and journeys in the wilderness, what the Bible calls the Valley of Gerar. And as he goes, he digs wells, just as Abraham had done before him in the same land. Now, some of the context here is it makes all the sense in the world to be in the wilderness and dig wells. If you do not have water, bear in mind that Isaac was not by himself. He had a family at this point. He had a wife. He had servants. He had cattle. He had animals. All these things, people and animals and things that depended on water. So as he's going, he would dig a well. And assuming he found fresh water that he could drink, they would set up camp and live there. Except this doesn't, this doesn't really work out for him because he does this twice and both times the, the locals, the Philistine shepherds, they come out and they're like, no, this is still our land. You need to keep going. Get out of here. This is ours. And so he can't really do much but leave, right? He's already been kicked out by the king. He doesn't have much of a choice but to keep pressing on further out. And eventually, eventually he does dig a well and he's left alone about it and he praises God and says, thank you, God, for giving us space. And, and as he settles in, the Bible doesn't make clear why this happens, but he travels to Beersheba. It's a favorite spot of Abraham and one which Isaac would have known well as a result. And while he's there, the king who kicked him out, Abimelech, and two of Abimelech's advisors visit Isaac to make a peace treaty with him, reminiscent of a treaty made with Isaac's father, Abraham. Uh, what, essentially what had happened was Isaac had gotten so powerful, so wealthy, they saw it and they were like, this man has divine power. There's some divine thing happening with this guy and we don't want any part of it. So they go out to him and sign a treaty. And the name of the place, Beersheba, literally means well of the oath. And this is almost an exact replica of something that Abraham himself went through with the same people. Now this morning I've told three stories. One dramatic story of romance that might make a good movie. A dull and uninteresting birth story. And an even more uninteresting, if not mind-numbing story about Isaac digging wells. And to be fair, the way I explained the birth of Esau and Jacob left out a lot. It's a compelling story due to some of its strangeness as well as its extraordinary importance to the entire Bible. But if you take the time to read chapter 25, you'll realize it's not about Isaac. And this morning I was given the task of preaching Isaac. And, and chapter 25 is about Jacob and Esau, not Isaac. Which ends up being true of Isaac more often than not. The Bible frequently lumps Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob together. God is called the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are the founding fathers of the Israelites. Uh, something comparable to men like George Washington and Thomas Jefferson and Ben Franklin for us here in the United States. And so with such a prominent place, you might expect to find more about Isaac in the Bible. But the more you go looking for him, as I did this week, the less and less you see him. 
Take, for example, the story of the sacrifice of Isaac. I didn't mention it this morning until this point. Ben preached from it last week. And it, it makes the point, right? The way we talk about it as the sacrifice of Isaac makes it seem like Isaac is the central figure. But as anyone familiar with the story knows, it's about Abraham. Abraham is the central human actor in that story, not Isaac. Take as another example our dramatic love story this morning. Perhaps you didn't notice this earlier because I didn't read straight from the text, but if you were to go and look at chapter 24, Isaac is only named three times. There are 67 verses, and in those 67 verses, Isaac is named three times. Meanwhile, Abraham is referenced over and over and over again. If we look back to Genesis 24, 27, where Abraham's servant is praising God for his good fortune, he says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master, not, not Isaac, it's Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. It's not Isaac, it's Abraham. The servant isn't praising God for blessing Isaac. The servant is recognizing God's faithfulness to Abraham. Even when he's getting a wife, Isaac isn't at the center. Isaac's successes are meant to be seen as a part of Abraham's story. They're to be seen as a part of God's blessing on Abraham. Even in chapter 26, the one place in the Bible where you could actually argue Isaac is more than a supporting character, even there we are told from the beginning that his prosperity will happen because of Abraham's faith and obedience. Even there, the blessing he receives and the peace treaty he signs echo what God first did for Abraham. Now there are probably a hundred ways to draw a line from these three chapters to the New Testament and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Many more than I thought there would be when I was given this task. And as a minister of the gospel, this is my task, is to draw that line and bring it forward in the primary way the theme that carries on throughout the Bible is that Jesus Christ is the offspring of Isaac and therefore the offspring of Abraham, the offspring in whom people from every nation are blessed. Jesus Christ is the offspring who will possess all these lands. God's faithfulness to Abraham culminates in Jesus Christ in whom by faith we now are descendants of Abraham. That's the big theme. That's the connecting line. That's the thing bringing Genesis forward to the gospel. And so I can hardly preach a sermon on Abraham and Isaac from Genesis and not make that clear. However, I want to take an overarching characteristic of Isaac's life that was looked at this morning and bring it forward for our benefit. Isaac was the recipient of God's blessing on Abraham. Isaac did not earn it. It was given to him by being born to Abraham. When God looked at Isaac and determined to bless him, God didn't see some charismatic, skilled, determined, and talented young man full of potential. He saw Abraham's son. When God guided Abraham's servant as he saw a wife for Isaac, he saw Abraham's son. When God heard Isaac's prayers for children, he saw Abraham's son. When God made Isaac prosper in the midst of famine to the point where he became so great that the closest king made a peace treaty out of fear, it wasn't because Isaac was a great farmer or a great man of war. He was Abraham's son, which is really great news. Because if you are a Christian this morning, when God looks at you, when you cry out to him in prayer, just like he saw Isaac sharing with Abraham, he sees you sharing with Christ. 
If you are a Christian this morning, you are hidden in Christ and through baptism and communion and participation in in the church, the body of Christ, you identify yourself with the Lord. And this is the most important thing in the universe. It is what you were made for. Humans were made in the image of God. You were made to identify with the Lord. But through your sin and my sin and our sin, we've separated ourselves from God. And that image has been torn and ripped. We're sinners. We fail to trust in God. We fail to see him as the source of all life and goodness and the ruler of everything. And we think we can go our own way and find success. We turn every which way to find meaning in life, to leave a legacy, to be successful, to have a better career, a, a nicer home, a better neighborhood, a better school district, be better parents, whatever it is. And we, we look for all of these things. But you were made in the image of God and nothing short of that will ever satisfy your soul. And the good news, the good news is you don't have to work really hard and hope that one day you earn that identity. We see this in the life of Isaac, and we'll see it in the life of Jacob here in a couple weeks. And we see it in the life of Abraham. Mistakes are made. Isaac lies about his wife, Rebecca, just like Abraham lied about his wife, Sarah. It's showing her lack of faith. God wouldn't wouldn't be able to give them offspring if they were dead. So they better help God out and make sure they don't die. Otherwise, God can't keep his promise. It's a breakdown of faith. It's a breakdown of trust. Yet God stays true. It wasn't something to be earned. It was something that was given. And you, too, can be born into it. God himself can open your eyes to reveal his holiness and your sinful soul. Your sinful soul that cannot exist with God any more than light can exist with darkness. And having your eyes opened to that, you can see the Savior Jesus Christ who has taken our sins, died in our place, and shared his perfect, spotless, sinless righteousness with us. And by faith, you take hold of that promise that we have been washed white as snow by the precious blood of Jesus and are born again. And if this is already true of you, then don't forget it. Don't forget this great thing that has been done for you, this great blessing of salvation and this hope of resurrection and inheritance with Jesus Christ in the kingdom that will come. These things that have been given to you, not because of what you've done, but because of whose you are. And that's why we read history like the book of Genesis. It's not to prove that these things happened. We read history to see the bigger picture unfolding in front of us. The data and the details of God revealing himself throughout time. Eventually revealing himself completely in Jesus Christ. We read history, we read Genesis to learn whose we are and who God is. As we look to books like Genesis, we see a God who is faithful to his promise in love and strength. He doesn't, just, he doesn't just wish these things would happen. He wants them and he makes them. We see a God who has overcome what looks impossible. Right? What looks like impossible odds time and time again. And we take heart knowing that this very same God has not only delivered us from our sins, but now goes with us by the Holy Spirit in the ordinary mundaneness of everyday life. And as we walk... We are not seen for our own sinfulness, but we are seen as belonging to Christ. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, give us strength as we leave this place um, to take heart knowing that 
Uh, our identity is in you. It's not because of where we're from or what we look like or what we do, uh, but it's being born of the Spirit of, that you do a work in us to make us your own. Uh, it's by grace we've been saved as a gift. Uh, Lord, I pray that we would all be encouraged this morning uh, through this portion of Genesis, not just with what it said, but also to take up books like Genesis and read them for all they're worth and to find you in the pages and to bring history that's thousands and thousands of years old to us now, um, not just as a model for how to live, but as a God who is, that we find you there, an anchor for our souls in in the midst of so much trouble. Uh, Thank you for your word and this church and uh, the love and the kindness of these people here. It's in Jesus' precious name I pray. Amen.